Shrinkwrap Radio number 879, philosophy professor Amy Harbin on the ethical importance of fearing well. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Shrinkwrap Radio, all the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. As you may know, my London associate and blogger, Isabella Clark, steps in to conduct yet another interview as she is able to do from time to time. And I really appreciate and treasure Izzy, and I hope you do too. She's an Oxford grad and a professional broadcaster. She reads widely in areas I don't cover. Consequently, she brings us high-quality guests I wouldn't have known about. Now here's Izzy with her latest find. Amy Harbin is Associate Professor of Philosophy and Women and Gender Studies at Oakland University, that's in Michigan, USA. Her research is in moral psychology, feminist philosophy and bioethics. She is the author of Fearing Together, Ethics for Insecurity, published by Oxford this year, and Disorientation and Moral Life, also published by Oxford University Press, that was in 2016. Now... Here's the interview. Amy Harbin, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm I'm so delighted that you are here. I read an article that you'd written for the online magazine Eon about your book, Fearing Together, Ethics for Insecurity. And it just struck me as incredibly interesting and a really different take on fear. But before, before we get into the book, give us an idea of of who you are and how you became interested in fear and the particular angle you take on it. Sure. So um, I'm a philosopher by training. I am Canadian. I now live in the U.S. in Michigan. Um, I was very interested throughout my master's and PhD in emotions. I wrote my dissertation on being disoriented, and that was my first book about not knowing how to go on after major life events like trauma or illness or migration, these kinds of things, and what might be the moral promise of these moments of disorientation. So that was my first interest. Um, and then when I started writing my second book, it was 2016. And of course, we remember the years between 2016 and 2022, uh, when I finished the book, were I think some of the most frightening years of you know, at least in recent memory. And it's it's not to say that fear is unique to our times, um, but it has felt like it has certainly been looming. So I became really interested in fear. I had been interested in thinking about trauma and post-traumatic experience 
Um, after writing my first book, I became interested in fear in 2016, and and this book came from that. Oh, that's really interesting, the way you describe um, disorientation. And sorry, I'm going a little bit off piste here, but it makes me think about L.A. Paul's work on transformative yes. experiences. Yes. I'm so taken by that idea. It's, it's yes. a fascinating concept. Yes. Yes, um, Laurie Paul has this amazing book on transformative experience that I actually didn't read until after my first book um, on disorientation. And I think she and I have some differences in our ways of thinking about these experiences. So she writes about parenting as the kind of experience that, you know, you're going to make a decision for those of us who do decide to become parents. Um, you make a decision, but you you don't know what the experience will be like and how it will change you, Right but you sort of make this decision as a leap into the unknown anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so I do find that very interesting. In my work on disorientation, I'm more interested in the kinds of things we don't choose, but that change us in right. um, unavoidable ways. And of course, not always for the better, right? Trauma is sometimes just, just awful and doesn't have any positive effects at all. But I think the history of moral philosophy has been very keen to see these these experiences as only damaging agency. Um, and that's not been my take. My take is that it can have more complicated and sometimes positive effects as well. So in a kind of like post-traumatic growth idea, if we translate into that into the realm of psychology, would, would that be the sort of thing you're looking at? <clears throat> yes, so that's interesting. I have written a couple of articles on post-traumatic growth which also I encountered after writing my after writing my book, someone said to me, you know, oh, this sounds a lot like post-traumatic growth. You should look into that literature, which I did. And the 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 worry that I have about the post-traumatic growth literature as a philosopher, mind you, right? I'm not trained as a clinician, but as a philosopher, I have some worries about their ways of framing the positive effects, the ways that they talk about growth. So they talk about things like as a result of a traumatic experience, you can have an increased clarity about your priorities in life, right? Maybe it gives you, mm -hmm. uh, suddenly you realize, oh no, I don't wanna do this meaningless job that I've hated forever. I want to do something else that matters more to me. Um, and so I have argued in, in a couple of articles, not in the book, that there's an underlying sense of what kind of agency is best um, and specifically that the kind of agency that's best is the clearest, most wholehearted, most determined, most focused kind of um, a kind of clarity of self is the kind of agency that's prioritized um, in the in the framework of post-traumatic growth. And I've been interested in thinking about disorientations in a much more kind of murky, complicated sense of agency where you may not feel wholehearted or clear at all about your priorities after trauma yeah. or after disorientation. And yet it may still be morally and politically um, beneficial for you. That's that's interesting. I must read that book, actually, because that's that's uh, I, I think I think the um, the nuances that you're bringing into it do um do articulate or speak to the concerns that I'd had about those um, those those aspects as well. So yeah, excellent. Something else on my reading list. Thank you, Amy. Anyway, getting back to what we're <laughs> supposed to be talking about. Um, at the start of the book, you write, fearing badly is a central part of many of our moral failures and fearing better is a central part of our moral repair. And I know this is, this is key, uh, essentially, to talking to the to the purpose of the book but could you just give us a thumbnail of 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 what you mean by that 
Exactly. So as I said, as a philosopher, you know, when I wanted to start writing about fear, I looked at the history of philosophy and philosophical takes on fear. And what I found um, for the most part is a kind of disdain for fear, right? In the history of philosophy, we see um, a kind of a strong preference for courage and a, 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 a real resistance to thinking that fear could be a significant or important part of our moral lives. And so what you find a lot in the history, and this I, it is not exclusively true, but it's a dominant kind of framework within philosophy, is, is if you have fears, there's a kind of um, pushback, right? So some, some accounts of fear tell you to fear differently. Some accounts tell you to not fear at all. Some accounts tell you to only fear some things rather than other things. But overall, a lot of the philosophical perspectives are trying to give a kind of corrective, right? Suggesting that fearers are doing it wrong or fearers are doing it badly and they should do otherwise. And so the thumbnail for my book is that I'm trying to change the conversation really and, and see fear as a significant and important and valuable part of our moral lives. Um, you know, one of the one of the parts of our, our lives that um, where our morality gets expressed. So one of the things I try to claim is that we might think that you should always avoid fear. In fact, on my view, no, you should not always avoid fear. In fact, avoiding fears creates some of our greatest threats. So that's mm -hmm. one of the claims is that avoiding fears is, is a bigger problem than fears itself. Um, and then the second, the second main claim that I'm trying to get across is that you might think that fearing is something that individuals do, that we fear by ourselves individually. And really, I try to suggest no fear is itself a much more relational practice um, and that we come to fear what we do by virtue of relationship. We have our fears within these relationships with other people and the way that fears affect our moral and political lives. All of these things are shaped deeply by our interpersonal relationships. Um, so in general, my point is to try to say fearing, oh, it's part of our moral lives. It's part of our ethical lives. Um, we can talk about fearing better or fearing worse, but we shouldn't be talking about um, stopping fearing or talking about fear as though it's something we do alone. That's really interesting. And it seems to me that there's a there's sort of been similar kind of uh, uh, sort of rehabilitative work, if you like, um, mm -hmm. on anger recently, because mm -hmm. I read um, Martha Nussbaum's book about about anger, where she's where she, where she in a very stoic way is is suggesting that anger is something that we should not really mm. experience um unless it's a particular form of anger which which even then isn't isn't really anger but 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 some other philosophers more recently have been making claims for anger as having an, an important role in ethical life and an important role in within societies and as a relation as a relational um emotion as well it seems yeah exactly i think there is I mean, philosophy is an interesting discipline, and I'm sure from people with more clinical background, it it might look a bit odd <laughs> that philosophers are sometimes kind of behind. But there has certainly been in recent years, in the last 30, 40 years, both a feminist and an anti-racist, um, uh, as you say, a rehabilitation of some of these, what we might think of as like problem feelings, problem emotions, um, with an eye to their political and moral significance. So definitely anger, rage, um, revenge. I mean, there's been lots of lots of focus on these hard emotions. And so I think that fear is just one of those. 
Um, one aspect that that did really strike me was this idea of relationality. And I think especially within the sort of within a clinical setting, um, practitioners, therapists, counsellors, psychologists, psychoanalysts might be dealing with a person and their individual fears. And um, but you're suggesting that that's that that's kind of the tip of the iceberg with fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think. You know, exactly. I think within philosophy, there has been an assumption of fears as belonging chiefly or exclusively to individuals, right? So fears as things that we come to alone. My fears belong to me. I've acquired them myself. I, I own them in a certain sense myself. I express them by myself, right? There's a kind of um, individualism uh, about thinking about fear as there is an individualism in so many areas of philosophy. Um, but I don't think it would be a surprise to people with clinical or, or practitioner background that it's, of course, much more interpersonally complicated than that. Um, so in the book, one of my main claims, as I said, is that fears are relational. They are relationally acquired, relationally experienced, relationally expressed. And so I draw on literature and developmental psychology um, to talk a lot about how we actually acquire the fears we do. We learn to perceive certain things as threats rather than others because of our processes of developing attention, which are almost entirely you know, constructed by the people, the formative others who are around us. And then even after childhood, we commonly are gaining fears of whatever we do fear um, in relationships with the fears of other people we trust, right? So when I see someone I trust fearing whatever it is, that shapes what I am likely to fear. It may not mean that 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 I automatically gain that fear myself. But for example, I talk in the book about vaccinations and the the you know anti-vax movement, which has been very strong in the US, um, and how parents' fears have been shaped strongly by the fears of other parents, right? So mm -hmm. if one parent comes to fear vaccinating their child their child, other parents who trust them are more likely to become inclined against vaccination as well. Um, and so speaking as someone who's very pro-vaccination, that concerns me the way that fears can be um, shared in those ways, but it doesn't just work on, on those kinds of things. It's in, in all kinds of areas of life. Yeah. So the point is really that um, we can't, we can't, though philosophers may be inclined to do that, see our fears as things that really just belong to us. We gain them in relationship. We have them in relationship. We express them in relationship, right? It's thoroughly relational. Um, you you also talk about um, saying you also say that um, we can err by assuming that our fear means we face an actual threat. And I guess, well, uh, being pro-vaccination myself, uh, uh, you know, I would I would claim that that would be often often the case with um, and the fear of, of vaccinations. So separating the two things our fear from actual threat seems to be very important and and i suppose um you know people might do that with with a phobia for example acknowledging that the spider isn't actually going to cause a real threat but a lot of the time i think there is the assumption that where we experience fear and where other others around us are expressing fear that there is there is indeed an actual threat there mm -hmm. because there is fear. It's like the the logic goes um, goes that way round rather than the other way round. Is that is that what you're sort of suggesting? Yes, exactly. So I think this is a big a big point for me is that much as we assume, and I'll speak for philosophers, we assume that um, fears belong to individuals. We also tend to assume that 
the existence of a fear points to the likelihood of an actual threat, right? So we uh, we think that if I observe a wasp in my backyard and I feel fear of that wasp, um, you know, that is gesturing towards that wasp being an actual threat. And so we think, I mean, this is this is a, you know, I guess an understandable leap, but it's from the existence of a fear of something to um, the presence of that thing being a threat, right? The identification of that thing being a threat. When just as you say, of course, any, you, th- you think about this for a second, and I think all of us can see that um, just because I fear something does not make it an actual threat. Um, there are lots of things that I fear. And again, as you say, the, the case of phobias is probably easiest because we have these names, we know they're pathologized, we know that this is meant to distinguish, right, there being an actual threat from the experience of fear. So that that kind of medicalizing term has done some of that work for us. But when you, there's no commonly used fear of vaccines, phobia, right? Maybe there is mm-hmm. one that I don't know, but um, calling something a phobia um, is not something we always do. That helps us, can help us to distinguish threat from non-threat. Lots of fears that we have in, in real life, it's much more uncertain, right? Is this in fact a threat or Mm. am I fearing something that is not a threat? And it depends who you ask, right? Um, There is a a fact of the matter if something is actually likely to cause you harm or statistically likely to harm you or not, right? And the fact of the matter, to just go back to this vaccine case, is that of course vaccines are not harmful in the way that people expect, uh, some people expect. So it's not an actual threat, but it might seem like an actual threat if I am fearing it. Um, So yeah, one of my claims is that perceptions of risk or perceptions of threat are not identical with actual risk or actual threat. Mm. Um, There can be a distinction between these things. That can can seem quite counterintuitive, but but interestingly, I think we can, I think, well, in when I've when I've spoken with a therapist, for example, um, there's there issues about an anxiety, for example, or perhaps a, a feeling of resentment or anger. Those those there's often a sort of like you know a kind of a, a cognitive discussion. Is that really mm-hmm. something? Is that really a cause for anxiety, mm-hmm. or is that you know what's the evidence for that being a cause of anxiety? Which I'm, I'm sort of differentiating slightly from a fear. Um, or is that is that really a cause for your resentment or 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 your anger? Could there be another um, another way of looking at it? But in many of the fears that I I suppose are, um, and we'll get to that, the ones that that the ways in which they become morally culpable, um, that 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 kind of process of examination doesn't seem to be really forthcoming. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and what you'd like to see, I I imagine, is for people to really question their fears about about sort of whether it might be immigration for example people are going to take our jobs or mm-hmm. um uh, or if there are too, there are too many people for at the national health service to support or those kind of those kind of fears what is the evidence for that rather than just having that as a as a fear feeling the fear and assuming that therefore that is an actual threat right right i mean Yeah, I think that one of the things I'm keen on is people being able to have a kind of humility about their experiences of fear such that we don't automatically assume that our fear is pointing us towards a threat. And this is much easier said than done. I don't Mm -hmm. pretend that it's easy. Um, 
one of the things I don't say is that people should stop fearing X, Y, Z, right? Um, I don't, I'm, I'm not inclined to say stop fearing the vaccination or stop fearing the wasp or stop fearing, or even stop fearing the migrant, right? Speaking as a migrant myself, I'm not, I'm not trying to say stop fearing. I am trying to say stop acting towards these things that you fear right. as though um, threatening them is going to relieve you of your fear because it's not, it's not going to happen that way. Um, and it's sometimes we can actually get to the point of being able to critically evaluate what we perceive as threats and realize that they're not threats. I might critically perceive, I might come to read so much about vaccines and learn, oh, in fact, this vaccine is not a threat. And so great. That that's lovely when that can happen, but even in cases where we can't be convinced that something's not a threat, and where we can't stop fearing, we can not act in dangerous ways towards those threats, those perceived threats, yes. and that is where I am most focused in the book. You you say that sometimes we don't understand ourselves to be feeling fear. What did you mean by that? I mean this this is a point. It goes back to something you were just talking about when mm. you. For example, speak with a therapist and you say, you know, I have this feeling of anger. They might help you realize, and this might take years, right? But they might help you realize, well, in fact, the real thing that is under that thing that feels like anger to you, what's really underneath that is actually fear. So for right. example, maybe I, I feel anger that this friend of mine has, you know, succeeded in all these ways. And, you know, it just makes me so mad they don't deserve it. And they're getting all these good accolades or whatever. And it might take a while, but I might come to realize that, in fact, what's under that, what seems to be anger is something much deeper, which is a fear of, you know, you know, a worry that I won't ever succeed in that way or that I won't ever have such a fulfilling life as they seem to. So I, I think it's interesting. And this is another point that I think clinicians, you know, would be probably obvious <laughs> is that we are not always very good at identifying what we are feeling. We might not always or easily, you know, be able to identify it at all, or at least not in the absence of help, right? So I think that the role of therapists, clinicians, and also just, you know, friends and loved ones in helping us identify that what we're feeling is fear can be significant. Yes, and I, I'm probably I'm probably going to be asking you to sort of essentially recap something that you said earlier. When my next question was about um, distinguishing between the cause of fear and the object of fear, but but and and that's um, and that seems it seems what you, what you're saying there. The cause of fear might be the uh, something that's something that's rooted personally in your psyche, and the object is is might be something that triggers it externally. So you take out the the react the the fear reaction. This which might be a, a fight or a flight on the object of the fear when actually the cause of mm -hmm. it is something that's um that's related to to you personally or to your upbringing personally your culture personally is that is that uh, am i understanding that correctly yeah exactly um there was a a kind of funny period in philosophy of emotions in the 1980s and into the early 1990s when philosophers of emotion became very concerned with this distinction between the causes and objects of emotion. And for a long time, I did not understand why this mattered at all. <laughs> I just would sort of read this, like these technical articles and whole books about distinguishing causes and objects and try to understand why they would ever care so much. But in writing this book, I did come to care, in fact, because um, 
I see now why this matters, right? So the cause and object of something, again, we often assume that these will be the same thing, right? So imagine I see someone walking behind me and they're coming up behind me quickly. And I, I feel like my, what's causing me to feel fear is this, the presence of this person and my fear is that they will mug me, right? They're coming up quick behind me on the sidewalk. So I think that the cause and the object of my fear are the same thing. I think that the cause is this person coming up behind me. And I think that the object, that is what I'm, the thing I'm fearing is also the person behind me. When in fact, imagine it's the case that it's just that I'm jumpy. I'm just hyper caffeinated. I mean, this, this is actually an example from that literature in the 1980s that, I, that I've modified a bit. Um, but imagine the actual cause of my fear has nothing to do with that person. It really has everything to do with the fact that I didn't sleep well. I had too much coffee. I'm jittery. I'm jumpy in the morning. Um, and so I, the object, the thing I think I'm fearing is the person walking behind me. But the actual cause of my fear is something else, biological, in fact, right? What I, what, what I didn't sleep, how I didn't sleep well enough and what I was in my body in terms of chemicals. Um, so cause and object can come apart and that can be a big problem. I mean, in some cases it's innocuous. In other cases, it's a problem when it's like, I think that that person coming up behind me is the thing that's causing me to fear and I want to act against them to make my fear stop, right? Mm -hmm. And I can sometimes act violently. I mean, imagine I do something violent towards that person. Mm -hmm. um, that could be endangering them in a way that they entirely do not deserve. Um, because I got this, this confusion, <laughs> I have this confusion between the cause and object of my, my fear. So um, one of the key points is that the cause and object of your fear can come apart. Mm -hmm. And this is also something we can realize. We don't always realize it in cases of fear. It's often this just happens all very unconsciously and we never question it. But we can, you know, with enough reflection and the right conditions come to recognize this distinction. And it can help us not act violently towards this thing that we're perceiving as a cause. That's that's. That idea and the um, the object of fear and the actual threat and the idea of not really knowing what we're what we're feeling all of those all of those sort of like distinctions to you know kind of understanding the roots of your own fear to therefore therefore as you say not necessarily stop you fearing but to stop you acting on the wrong target or acting inappropriately to to uh, you know in a in a situation or to an innocent person and you can so suddenly see where the mora moral concern comes mm -hmm. into this it it does make it very very clear it's it's evident there how philosophy and particularly ethics has come into this. Well, the philosophy in terms of distinguishing all these concepts and um, and ethics too. But you also um, referred to a lot of, you went through the neuroscience literature and the clinical literature as well in your book. How did those um, sort of feed into your into your argument and, and into your understanding of, of fearing together? Yeah, so it was very interesting. Of course, I have more of the background in philosophy. The neuroscience is not what I've been trained in. And so I did get kind of deep within literatures on um, threat perception, um, risk perception, there, uh, which are now you know huge areas of research in neuroscience. Um, but initially, some of them came out of non-neuroscientific areas, thinking about... Um, 
uh, how to shape communities or populations sense of what would be risky versus not risky. Um, so there were quite interesting historical backgrounds to these literatures, but all this to say, I did get pretty deep within um, the, the threat detection literature and in particular in how there've been whole sub areas of the field focused on how perceiving threat shapes other cognitive processes. So, um, you know, threat detection can shape things like visual perception. Um, it can shape uh, information processing. So being attuned to a perceived threat uh, can mean that you perceive visually the rest of your landscape or the rest of your scenario, your, your surroundings completely differently. It can also enhance information processing, which you might um, be aware of if you think of a time when you felt very fearful how you can how attentive you become to details, right? Um, a lot of the a lot of the literature seems to suggest this is you know I don't want to do a disservice to the incredibly detailed literature on this, but a lot of the big picture seems to be the more fearful we are, the more we're in the midst of threat detection, the more focused our attention can become, and the more you know detail oriented, the less big picture oriented mm -hmm. we become, mm -hmm. the much the more as would make sense evolutionarily. If you think about you know, trying to escape a threat, you're gonna focus on exactly what you need to do to escape that threat. Um, there's also interesting literatures on motivation, how threat detection can shape motivation. Also how, how it can make it more likely that you'll perceive other risks. So the more attentive you are to one threat, the more perceptive you're likely to be about other risks. And of course, also, it can compromise capacities for trusting other people. Um, and there's a whole interesting uh, mm. area of research on how threat perception affects interpersonal dynamics. Um, so I, one of the things I found interesting is that, of course, all of these areas of research in neuroscience come with their own underlying backgrounds and assumptions about um, about selves, about agency, about, um, you know, they do or don't take on more evolutionary perspectives in psychology. Um, they even have assumptions with respect to gender. Um, they all come with these like huge sets of background assumptions and they don't all align, right? Mm. They certainly don't all align with the philosophical perspectives that I also take on. So it's not... Um, I tried to draw on these literatures while also acknowledging that there are disagreements among them and certainly disagreements in terms of their background assumptions about fearers and what kinds of selves we are. Um, but yeah, there's a lot that was uh, interesting to me in neuroscience. As you, as you're sort of talking about that, I was thinking too about the, um, the way in which um, there's a sort of insidious or Machiavellian way of looking at um, of, of people having an interest in threat literature in the, the way that it can motivate people. And yes. there is um, it, it, it's a powerful tool for, for example, a political party to use if they want to um, if they want to sort of encourage certain um certain voting behaviors by by a population and you do talk about the way that um the way that the manipulation fear is manipulated um for particular ends could you just could you sort of talk talk to that a little bit and and your views on the on the sort of ethics or otherwise of that kind of um behavior 
For sure. So I think, I mean, one of the books that a lot of people make connections with on this topic is Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine, which um, has talked about moments of crisis as being seized, especially by right-wing forces for political gains, right? So whether that crisis is a global pandemic or whether it's, um, you know, some other economic crisis or a climate crisis or whatever it is, we have these moments of history that show especially right-leaning forces um, often using these, these crisis moments and the fear that crisis moments generate to um, convince populations that they should let, they should basically give up more control um, and let, let political forces take over. And so that often takes the form of, um, you know, privatizing, buying public infrastructure up and privatizing it, right? Buying public school systems and privatizing them, buying public water systems and privatizing them. Um, and then, of course, populations can be dealing with those political, the fallout of that for decades and, you know, generations to come. Um, and so there is an interesting literature on the left that's about the use of these moments, these crisis moments, um, for political gain. I think one of the things that interests me most is that, of course, um, whatever I want to say about the moral and political effects of fears and what fear should do um, and how fear should gain sort of epistemic humility about our fears and how we should, uh, you know, not act on our fears as, as though they indicate actual threats. And everything I want to say about what we do as individuals always is happening in a broader political and moral context um, that inclines us towards, you know, some perspectives and some fears and away from others. And so, you know, the example of migrants that we brought up earlier, of course, if we're living in a country or a continent, which has a kind of um, fear-based politics that is anti-migration or anti-migrant, then it's going to be all the harder for us to get clear on, you know, am I really afraid of migrants or am I afraid of something else? Am I really, should I, should I act violently, you know, in voting or otherwise towards migrants or should I recognize that these migrants aren't threats at all. All of all of whatever we can do morally and politically as individuals is within these broader cultures of fear, right? Um, and those are very shaped, very much shaped by the political moments that we're in and the the kind of um the kind of government and otherwise political forces that we're we are responding to. Yes, it's 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 often difficult for um for an individual to um to sort of well to break clear of their standpoint, their cultural positionality. Um that's that's that is that is challenging, but I suppose I suppose to take to take moral agency, one wants to try to to try to sort of divorce oneself a little bit from the zeitgeist. But as you say, we can assume that that all of what we believe is us rather mm -hmm. than is something that we've um, sort of accumulated like barnacles over, mm -hmm. over time. Mm -hmm. you, you said um, that, that you used one expression, um, the idea that expression individuates. And I found this fascinating. It, it was very powerful to me, the idea that having our expression of emotion interpreted by others in a way different to how we perceived it can lead to us feeling differently 
Um, and and that that because this isn't in a sort of like deliberately well I suppose it could be but it's it's just in a sort of frequent situation that you know you say something express something and somebody assumes that you mean one thing and you end up thinking oh yeah maybe that was what I was feeling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so how how does that come into your argument yes I love this idea um This actually comes from the work of a really dear mentor of mine, another philosopher named Sue Campbell. So I highly recommend she has this really beautiful book back from 1997 called The Interpreting the Personal, um, where she she really lays out this idea. This is hers, not mine. But the idea is that feelings are, in fact, um, so deeply shaped by their expression to other people and by the interpretation those people give to them that the lack of sympathetic interpretation from another person can actually um, make it impossible for us to have the feeling in the same way. So for example, if I express to you, um, you know, something has been happening in my life and I express a kind of anger to you about that. And you say to me, um, no, but you know what you're really this either you're dismissive in some way that says I oh, you should you don't have a right to feel that at all. That's ridiculous. And you dismiss it. Or you say, no, in fact, what you're feeling is this other thing. You just mm. don't realize it. You're wrong about your identification of the feeling. It's really this other thing. Both of those kind of non-sympathetic responses can cut so deep as to the level of me not being able to have the feeling in the same way um, or at all, potentially. If I don't get sympathetic interpretation, I may not have the feeling at all. Um, and she gives these lovely, beautiful examples of really complicated feelings that are that are um, what she calls idiosyncratic feelings. So they're they're quite different. They're not your standard anger or fear. They're a much more complicated, context-specific feeling. But the general point is that the position of interpreters, these other people in our lives, again, whether they be clinicians or mm-hmm. you know loved ones or even not loved ones, I mean, maybe co-workers or, you know, neighbors or whatever, these people can have such a powerful impact in our emotional lives that they need to, we need them in order to have the feelings that we have. And so why I think this is important for fear is because I try to claim that, um, you know, without the position of sympathetic interpreters, we may not be able to have or, you know, express the fears that we have, and we may not be able to cope with them in the way that we need to. And a lot of what I'm interested in is figuring out how to cope with fears without acting on them. Again, my 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 push is not really to stop having the fears so much as to um, cope with them without trying to threaten other people or other objects. So I think that the role of sympathetic interpreters and being able to say you are having that fear, that is a fear that you're having, we can cope with it together, is uh, is a really significant role. And that brings back the relation, the relationality of the of the emotion, and puts it really to the forefront, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. As you said, I must read that that book. Um, I, I've I've um, I, I remember you know sort of many occasions in in the past when I I can get quite enthusiastic about things, and you know like beautiful things or you know animals and trees things like that and I'd look at something and I and I you know oh my god it's so beautiful oh look at that again and you know getting mm-hmm. very you know just 
or a state of sort of like joy or wonder and and excitement all sort of like melded into one that felt really good to me and that I wanted to sort of share and um and the 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 response is inevitably all right calm down Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know we're British (laughs) we don't don't have those kind of um, Mm -hmm. sort of expressions and um and that is and that is sort of like that is really sad because I end up feeling that um um you know those those it takes it takes um the emotions become less frequent but also mm. also are tinged with this sense of oh well I must be crazy if I'm mm. having this amount mm. of um joy but you know it's kind of nice to feel that amount of joy about looking yeah. at a tree. I mean, you know, there's a, there's enough things Why to not? be miserable about. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So this is a case of non-sympathetic interpretation. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, so, so going back to fearing, and um, so if we want to talk about being morally responsible um, for, for our for our fearing. Um, and within the within the sort of framework of of the book, you talk about the different ways in which we are perhaps not morally responsible by displacing fears, manipulating fears, living in a culture of fear. So all of and particularly, I suppose, displacing fears is the one from an individual basis that we need to we need to sort of unpack a little bit. Um, what are the ways we've we've talked about those distinguishing between the object of fear and the and the cause of fear? But just to sort of to give a really sort of neat way of saying what are the ways in which we can be morally irresponsible about mm-hmm. our fears? <clears throat> yeah, so I think I think the the key problem that I try to draw attention to in the book is having great fears, right? Or fears of great threats. So these things that are really just unavoidable and that uh, it's hard to think of anyone who doesn't share these fears. So the fear of suffering, the fear of loss, the fear of death, the fear of um, inability to protect your loved ones. I mean, these things, they're just part of life, arguably, right? Um, Having these fears and yet them being so difficult for us to cope with or just exist with that, that we tend to try to alleviate them um, through a kind of process of displacement. So I do use the the concept of displacement from Freud, early Freud that people are, I'm sure, familiar with, um, where he basically talks about displacement, not only of fears, but of all kinds of, of you know, energies, mental energies from um, their proper object onto something else that is more uh, manageable, right? So his example is the famous like little Hans example of where the fear is really of, of this little boy is of his father for complicated Freud, Freud reasons that we won't go into. Um, and I, I should say, you know, I'm not, I'm not like a fan of Freud, you know, unreservedly, but I do think this idea of displacement is useful. So little Hans displaces his fear of his father onto a fear of horses. And he has this phobia of horses. Um, the idea there being that, it's it's easier in some ways to avoid horses in your life than it is to avoid a father who you are worried will kill you, right? And I think a similar kind of thing often happens with our our great fears in our right in our regular lives. So my fear, for example, of you know, will I will I be able to provide for my family might be displayed. That's this great fear that really I will always live with so long as I have people that I care for. 
um, that fear can be displaced on something that seems much more easily managed. Like maybe I cult, I have this fear of migrants, you know, as you said, those migrants here taking our jobs, right? I'm going to have the fear of migrants and I'm going to vote for parties who are against migrants and I'm going to, you know, um, act, you know, be an activist in some way against migrants, say, um, trying to act against this more manageable perceived threat of migrants. When again, really, of course, these migrants are not a threat at all. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I myself am a migrant. I'm not speaking like I actually fear migrants. I'm just saying, you know, imagine mm -hmm. that's my fear. And so I can act in all kinds of ways to try to manage the threat of migrants that I can't actually manage the, the true threat that I fear of an unstable economic landscape that might make it difficult to provide for my family. Mm -hmm. um, and so I try to manage these much, these perceived threats, like the case of migrants. And what I claim in the book is that we, once we have done this displacing move from, you know, the great threat that I actually am fearful of onto some other more manageable perceived threat like migrants, then we can use these controlling strategies to try to control those threats, those perceived threats. So I have a number of controlling strategies that I talk about in the book about, you know, removal, trying to remove the threat or escaping the threat and a number of others. Um, and my point is really to say, you know, let's look at what we're doing here often, uh, whether that perceived threat is migrants or vaccines or uh, people outside the gender binary or um, indigenous communities or any number of other things. Often what we're doing is displacing our great fears onto these more manageable perceived threats and then trying to control the threat. And what that often looks like, of course, is subjecting those perceived threats to actual endangerment, right? Like we are actually endangering them. We are endangering migrants. We are endangering indigenous communities. We are endangering gender minorities, all of that. Mm -hmm. And so that's the moral piece that I'm very worried about. Yeah. Um, and I want to suggest that we have moral responsibilities not to do that, not to be um, attempting to control these perceived threats. I want to say it's both ineffective, right? It's not going to get us feeling better. It's not going to fix our fears. It's not going to have us, you know, solve our great threats that we, in fact, always need to live with. Um, so it's both um, ineffective to do that, and it's also morally irresponsible. Yeah, and and I it it's very it's a very very strong argument, and um, well, it totally convinced me anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> The, this section sums up the um, that that the first part of the book before you sort of go into um, how could we experience and respond to these fears um, differently. So um, you write, I have argued that fears are a central part of our relating to others. That fears of the uncontrollable make up a significant portion of our emotional lives, and that such fears are often compelled onto more manageable perceived threats. Individuals often attempt to control these perceived threats, but such efforts are typically unsatisfying and, in many cases, morally unacceptable. The question remains how could we experience and respond to these fears differently? I thought that quote really sort of like summed up ever so clearly. To, essentially what what we've been talking about and so that the you know my my sort of final question is so amy how do we <laughs> how do we experience and respond to these fears differently um so here of course 
the answer is not easy. Um, this is this is where I conclude the book. I have the fifth and final chapter of the book is trying to talk through some approaches to doing this. And I think we have to have a kind of long view about these approaches. There's no easy fix. Um, I think uh, that fearing is one of the most significant moral aspects of our lives. And I think that we should see fearing well, fearing better as a long-term, you know, lifetime kind of goal. Um, so I do talk about three kinds of approaches that I think might support fears and fearing better. Um, one of them is mindfulness, which I'm sure your listeners are very mm-hmm. familiar with. Um, it has its, has its problems, has its uh, varieties of, of approaches within that. Um, but I think that one of the things that's useful about mindfulness is, is this awareness piece, right? So a kind of I'm a, I can become aware that I'm having a fear of this person behind me who I think is about to mug me, but I might be able to become aware that in, rea- in reality, the cause of my fear is not that person coming up behind me, it's something else. And so I, th- I think I try to claim that there's some benefit to that, um, that uh, slight separation from the experiences yes. of fear itself so that you can gain some perspective on it. I also, though, talk about somatic regulation and politicized somatics. So the somatic regulation piece people might know from The Body Keeps the Score, the very famous Russell van der Kolk book and movement, um, which, again, is not without criticism, um, both of him and the movement itself, but that those the practitioners of somatic approaches have some very interesting and and I think helpful ways of thinking about um, how to cope with fears in the body right? And, and unlike so much of the history of philosophy, and also so much of the history of clinical approaches, it's very body focused, right? The experience of fear is very, or the the coping mechanisms for fear are very focused on existing with fear in the body and recognizing that it's, it's going to be part of our bodily experience, whether we like it or not. And then the politicized somatics piece is much more, it's often from social movement um, spaces, people are taking somatic approaches like van der Kolk's and others into movement spaces and thinking about giving it more um, political awareness of how things like racism, sexism, heterosexism, right? How these harms um, may shape our bodily experience and how we can uh, contend with some of those harms in in our kind of healing practices. So I think that there are these supports um, and in general, I think what we need are more relationships for coping with these fears together. And I think there are structural and institutional things that make those relationships more available, right? So a robust and um, you know accessible and affordable mental health care system, which of course is the dream, right, for all of us, mm-hmm. um, that that would go a long way to helping people cope better with the fears that we all have. Um, and I think also, healthcare in general, um, a, a functioning healthcare system. Um, but it's, as you'd expect, it's all these institutions, right? A functioning and supportive school system, a functioning and supportive healthcare system, mental health care. Yeah, um, all of this can work together to actually <laughs> make these relationships possible. Um, I think at the core, what we need are relationships so that we can be holding our fears together rather than um, acting on them or trying to get them to go away. Yes, that's quite beautiful. I I did a um a, I an interview recently um with um a professor Matthew Smith who um is a he he works in 
the history of um, the history of mental health care. Mm. And um, he had written um, an article in a different um, online magazine, um, which the editors had given the title "How to Solve the Mental Health Crisis," mm. and <laughs> I thought, "Look, that's." That's an ambitious title. Um, <laughs> obviously, he, you know the editors have chosen that. Right. Um, but but he's, he, you know, from looking um, very carefully and studying very intensively the history of mental health care, his his views, you know, on the institutional and social side, um, he had sort of three big pres- prescriptions. One of them was UBI, and you know, and a. a, a a universal basic income yes universal basic income so to have the sense that you know if if one isn't in the perpetual threat of not being able to keep a roof over one's head or feed one's children you know there's Mm -hmm. there's there's some there's some sort of like ease to a certain level of stress Mm -hmm. um affordable healthy food so he was saying just take all the chemicals out of food Mm -hmm. and the third one was um was access to nature for all all people mm-hmm. and um that those would that those you know they they're not all that he would would mm-hmm. suggest but as a sort of like first three steps mm-hmm. and you see the um as far as um you know dealing with sort of fear relationally but the idea of of removing the, the some of the um some of the greatest causes for um for feelings of instability or for feelings of uh, because if you're feeling unwell a feeling of um concern anxiety and fear is is even more likely to to come to the fore mm-hmm. and it seems as if it seems as if so much that would make sort of society better does does demand this um a social upheaval, a, a complete change in the way that we we sort of govern ourselves, care for care for each other, mm-hmm. make life affordable, the basic things affordable for people, um, and well, yeah, the uh, fixes never just feel differently. No, exactly, <laughs> like, exactly. It's restructure well, everything. Yes, yeah. yes, you put yeah. that beautifully. Um, when I was just sort of wibbling on somewhat uncertainly, um, but one just one one very final thing. That I, I wanted to I wanted to ask if you thought that there was um that there were sort of like takeaway lessons for people who are dealing with um with um clients perhaps or people who are in training as therapists or or, yes. or analysts for if there are aspects of of your work of your book that could be um of interest or import to them. Mm, that's interesting. Yes. I mean I I I am certainly humbled as a non-clinician myself, so I don't want to pretend that I have the answers for clinicians. Um, I do find, I myself found some of what I talk about in the fifth chapter um, in terms of resources, ways of thinking about sitting with fear and what in fact helps people sit with fear rather than, you know, some of the cognitive behavioral therapy approaches of of pushing down, you know, what would really happen if this thing you fear happened? Would it be so bad, right? Trying to get to the bottom of a fear and sort of unearth it so that we might no longer be afraid of it. I think, um, you know, as I'm sure many, many people realize those, those sorts of things, the idea of trying to dig up and uproot and then get rid of fears, I think is, is not where much of the focus is now. I think the focus, um, is and should be on the living with fears because I think it I think it is true we are currently living in some really terrifying times 
Um, and not just currently, you know, many generations have been living in these times, but I think coping with and coming to see fear as, um, you know, something that we can live with rather than trying to avoid or get rid of um, anything that we can do to support that, I, I think I'm in favor of. Wonderful. And is there anything else that you um, that you feel we have missed or anything that you'd particularly like to bring up or what you're working on next just um, before I let you go? No, I don't think so. This has been such a lovely conversation. I really appreciate it. No, thank you so much. I'm sorry. I sorry. I sort of like lost track of my my final my final question. I I got rather overexcited by the idea of um the sort of overexcited is good. Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Amy Harbin, for being on Shrink Wrap Radio, and good luck in everything that you do in the future. Thank you so much. I found Amy to be a delightful interviewee and was grateful for her patience and generosity as we navigated areas that are completely new to me. I'd been keen to talk to her because I was curious about the idea of fearing badly as a central part of many of our moral failures and fearing better as a central part of our moral repair. I'd considered fear and anxiety to be divorced from morality and what's more to be individual rather than relational concepts. Still, I found her argument convincing and it encouraged me to wonder how it would look to take this view into the therapeutic domain. How can counsellors support people to feel well together? Amy suggested ways to help people sit more comfortably with their fear rather than being reactive and acting them out potentially against innocent parties. She highlighted mindfulness, somatic therapies and building relationships. I apologise for my ramblingly incoherent question toward the end. I blame menopause mind. But I'll sit with my fears of being judged and found wanting. My huge thanks to Amy and, as ever, to Dr Dave for giving me this opportunity. My name's Trish and I'm a psychologist and psychotherapist. I've donated to Shrink Crap Radio because I think it's a fantastic resource. I live in a rural area several hours' drive from the state capital and I don't get to attend many seminars. Shrinkwrap Radio is a tangible contributor to my ongoing professional development. It helps me keep up to date and I love hearing the leaders in the trauma and interpersonal neurobiology fields talk about their work. It gives me a different perspective on their ideas and helps me get my head around some of the complexities. I also really appreciate the Jungian and transpersonal things that Dr. Dave covers. Thank you very much, Dr. Dave. I appreciate what you do for all of us. Dr. Dave here again. Thank you, Tish Preston from Somewhere Down Under. I certainly appreciate you too for your feedback and for helping to sustain my work at Shrink Wrap Radio and encouraging others to do likewise. Time once again to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to my London associate and her guest, philosophy professor Amy Harbin, for alerting us to the ethical importance of fearing well. Due to the busyness of the holidays, I haven't lined up my guests. I've sent out invites to two potential guests whom I know you will find very interesting, but I'm reluctant to reveal their names until I have their commitment. 
But believe me, there will be another episode next week. Until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.